This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Now let's talk about something that we need to talk more about. And it deals with a vigilant rally that is being held. And even before we get to that, both the City of London and London Police Service have released statements on this. So there is a vigil and rally that is being called the Stop Asian Hate Vigil and Rally. And it is taking place later this week. London Police Service has released a statement saying they are committed to a safe and secure community. COVID-19 is still our reality, so following current public health guidelines and restrictions is key. They are making every attempt to contact organizers prior to events to go over any current provincial regulations and public health guidelines, answer any questions, and remind them that there is the potential that fines may be issued should the gathering exceed provincial limits. We also have heard from the City of London and the managing director of Parks and Recreation, Scott Stafford. He released a statement saying the City of London supports and acknowledges the right to peacefully protest. It's also important to note that this protest is being planned during a time when the world continues to be impacted by a global pandemic. As COVID-19 remains an ongoing threat in our community, we are not permitting the use of the stage in Victoria Park at this time. Groups wishing to organize may utilize the plaza area outside the northwest corner of Victoria Park as this is a public space. So, in an effort for full disclosure, that's what we have from London Police Service. That's what we have from the City of London. And now let's deal with the issue. Let's deal with the fact that a vigilant rally is being held for Stop Asian Hate. Joining us right now is one of the co-organizers, Tegan Elliott. Tegan, thanks for spending some time with us. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am good. Uh, obviously, holding anything that brings a group setting in a pandemic is a challenge. Overall, we're going to get to exactly why this is taking place, and that's the real message here. But can you talk to us a little bit about organizing this during a pandemic and, and what you'd like people to know? Uh, yeah. So um, from the very beginning, we wanted to do it in a way that would be safe and would follow guidelines and everything. And so um, as soon as I had the idea, my first instinct was con- to contact uh, city councillors and the city and figure out how to go about doing this. Um, and what was kind of frustrating was that uh, the city and the LPS um, had initially led us to believe that there wouldn't be an issue with the event as long as we were social distancing and wearing masks, which of course we were going to do and provide hand sanitizer and everything for people. Um, and then there was a lot of just evasion. And uh, when we try to ask questions, we would get passed around over and over and no one really had a direct answer for us. Um, and so we had been planning this and then suddenly we got a call from the LPS who said, um, you know, we'd initially said this was okay, but we want to let you know that if you go forward with this, you, the organizers, could be charged for this. And so um, that was when we realized, okay, we probably need to switch this up then because um, although we had plans around COVID guidelines and everything, um, uh paying off charges and everything is not feasible for us as students and we also want to do this in a way that works with the city 
and is safe for all the attendees. Um, so it's going to be mainly online now. And so um, organizers and speakers will be there in person as that doesn't exceed any limits or anything. Um, but our attendees are going to be uh, there virtually through Zoom and Facebook. Okay. All right. So when does this take place now? Because I know that's that's something that you may have had to alter a little bit. Um, so it's actually still the same uh, time, which is this Friday at 6.30 p.m. People can uh, click on the Zoom links or the Facebook links, which we will provide ahead of time and watch them. All right. We're talking with Tegan Elliott, co-organizer of the Stop Asian Hate Vigil and Rally, which will take place, as Tegan points out, basically online for anyone who is attending. And that will start at 6.30 on Friday night. Let's talk about the reason you want to get a message out. We know that we live in a divided world. We live in a polarized world. Post something on social media that has any kind of opinion to it, and you'll find that out very quickly. Where you see anti-Asian hate, what are you finding right now? Um, I'm finding there are a lot of people who didn't really even know that this was an issue that was occurring. Um, a lot of people denying that it's occurring or that Asians face any sort of racism at all. And I, I found that um, through, especially through running the Stop Asian Hate London account, I would uh, get like really uh, racist messages from people, um, people saying this isn't necessary, like you guys are just complaining and pushing an agenda. Um, someone messaging with their own racist messages such as uh, build my railway and um, uh, all the problems come from China and stuff like that. Um, but really like just an alarming amount of people denying that Asians have faced any sort of racism before or that they still do. Wow. That's, that is awful to hear right there, you know, and I'm sure you're not even telling us, half of the things that you saw as responses. Let's talk about some of the things that can happen personally or some of the things that, that you've heard from people that, that maybe not aren't even online. What sorts of things do you think uh, or do you need us to know in that way? Um, I think people just need to understand that although it's not been an issue that's been talked about out loud much, um, that doesn't mean that it's not occurring. Um, myself, growing up in London as a Chinese woman, I've experienced racism. Every Asian person I know has experienced a form of racism at least once in their life. Um, and so uh, I think it's really important for people to understand that although people are more brazen about their racism now because they have an excuse to be. Um, it's been an underlying issue for such a long time. Um, and uh, so many things contribute to it, which is like yellow peril, um, uh, the idea of blaming a minority group for um, health crises or natural disasters, such as this pandemic. Um, and that, uh, the little things like the language you use matters, um, such as calling it the China virus, which was a big thing with one of the alehouses downtown, um, and people not really understanding why that was an issue. 
We are talking with Tegan Elliott, co-organizer of the Stop Asian Hate Vigil and Rally, which takes place largely online for attendees on Friday at 6.30 p.m. You've named a number of things in history, recent history and history that goes back a little further. Do we look at that as, as maybe where this stems from, or Tegan, do you point somewhere else as well? Um, I do think it definitely stems from things that have happened in the past. And uh, it's ignorant to think that things that have happened in the past don't still influence the present. Um, The idea of Yellow Peril, which started a while ago, um, hasn't fully gone away, especially what we're seeing now with people saying things to me like, all the problems come from China. You came here and spread your problems to Canada. Um, When I've I mean, grown up here basically my whole life. Um, and so uh, I think it is a mixture of things that have stemmed from the past, such as that, um, uh, factors from the present, such as the pandemic. Um, I think you can't really discount either. Racism isn't an overnight fix. No. And it would be really nice if it was, but it's it's more of a long-term thing that we have to work on. And when you look at, at working to overcome this and move forward, where do you think we go with that? Um, I mean, I know I have said this before, but I think first steps are definitely recognizing it as an issue and understanding it, which... Um, Unfortunately, it sounds simple, but a lot of people can't do it or are not willing to really open their minds up and listen to the experiences of Asians in Canada. Um, And I've seen like a number of people say, oh, Canada is just better than this or this isn't really a problem here. Um, And that's, I think, a dangerous mindset to have because it allows so many things to occur because it's being hidden under this veil of us being super progressive and diverse and welcoming to people. Um, So I think definitely first steps are having it acknowledged as an issue. And um, I know uh, Jagmeet Singh and the NDP, they had passed a motion asking Justin Trudeau to step up and do something about anti-Asian racism because so far all he's done is, uh, I think, say a few things about it. Um, And obviously just talking about it isn't enough there needs to be actual action in place to protect asian canadians tegan where do we get the information for friday night and the stop asian hate vigil and rally where where do we go uh yeah so we have an instagram page which is stop asian hate london um and we have actually a facebook event page by the same name as well and all information and updates will be posted on there tegan thank you so much for taking some time for us today and talking about this Of course. Thank you for having me. You keep safe. You too. That's Tegan Elliott, co-organizer of Stop Asian Hate Vigil and Rally. And come on. I mean, the the things that, that even just posting about something that is designed just to have a conversation and you get that much hate in return, and I guarantee you Tegan's not sharing some of the stuff that she has heard. Come on. I mean, we've got to start moving in a better direction. And uh, as Tegan says, admitting it exists is one of the first steps.
Keep the question of what is the job these days of a city council? Is it producing policy? Is it taking what is given by constituents and putting that into play? Where do we sit on that? Well, let's go back last night and, and get a little bit more background information on what did take place. Ward 11 Councillor Stephen Turner joins us. And Councillor Turner, last night was a long discussion. Did you hit the pillow for at least a, a few hours? Well, a few hours anyway. I think we wrapped up just before midnight last night, so it's a, it's a bit of a barn burner of a meeting. Did you expect this much discussion in the way that it kind of played out going into this, given what had happened at committees? Uh, yeah, very much. Uh, I think I was uh, anticipating, uh, if not uh, really uh, concerned about the way this meeting would go. Uh, it went pretty much as expected, uh, and the, the length of time the meeting spent uh, certainly reflect, reflected the, the amount of attention that uh, uh, some of these items received from the public. One of the concerns going in, Councillor Turner, was... If exceptions were granted for some but not all on this issue, that the next time there was an issue that people had differing opinions on, the request for exceptions would come again. Now that we've kind of seen that take place, that we have seen exceptions from some areas in the city that will not have to have sidewalks, what do you think this means for other issues in the future? Yeah, this has been my concern with this term of council, especially. Uh, I, I know I'm rather dogmatic about policy sometimes, but the reason we have policies in place, and we spend a lot of time developing those policies, and those policies are formed by significant input from the community and all the stakeholders to make sure that when we come up to difficult decisions, we have a pretty clear framework of how to decide uh, to uh, to address them, and so that we're consistent. And that we make sure that we don't uh, create situations where there's significant inequities. And that's what happened with the sidewalk debate. Uh, it, uh, when, when we grant exceptions and it makes it seem that, uh, that one circumstance is different than another, which it really isn't at its root, uh, the, the question is, uh, do you support the sidewalks or not? And, uh, and there may be circumstances within a, a neighborhood that might seem that they're, they put priority of, over others. Uh, but the purpose of sidewalks is to ensure accessibility and walkability and connectivity between neighborhoods. Um, and, uh, and back when neighborhoods were built without sidewalks, it was because they just wanted to save money. It wasn't because they had some master plan of, uh, of city building. And now uh, our policies are to try and correct those, uh, those challenges that were faced in the past. Ward 11 Councillor Stephen Turner joining us. Councillor Turner, why do you think things went the way they did? I think it's really challenging to hear from a large number of residents in your ward uh, and um, and not support that. I, I, I've gone through it myself a few times as a, a ward councillor. It was actually one of the first decisions uh, I had to do as a ward councillor uh, back in uh, 2015. And there was a, a petition signed by over 100 residents on one block that didn't want a sidewalk installed. But the thing was, it connected three churches, two schools, and and a shopping plaza. And it was a really important piece of infrastructure. So I said, I'd I'd take that uh, petition forward to to council, but I wasn't going to support it. But it's challenging, and it's hard to do. And uh, and, and the, the thing that we have to recognize is that as councillors, we represent the whole city. 
just a, one small block of the city. And we have to take all of those interests into account and balance them. What does this mean if we look ahead to 2025 and what the province is asking municipalities to do with accessibility? Yeah, uh, the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act seeks to make sure that we address systemic inequities in access for those with, with disabilities. And we have to take a look at everything from our websites uh, to our sidewalks to our built infrastructure and make sure that we've contemplated how those who have challenges with accessibility can access the services and amenities that the city provides. And the, and the city needs to make sure that it provides those for all, not just for some. So uh, I think it's something we need to take pretty seriously. Uh, the Association of Municipalities of Ontario is holding a workshop, ironically, next week about what the AODA means for municipalities and how it has to interpret them. Whether it's written specifically into the letter of the Act or whether we interpret the intent of the Act, I think that's probably more important. And uh, we, we heard from some councillors who said that uh, um, that there are some people with, uh, with disabilities or accessibility challenges that prefer not to use sidewalks. But conversely, there are those who absolutely need sidewalks and cannot navigate on a road. Take someone who's blind, for example. It is not an option because you don't have the delineation of the, that pathway to say what's safe and what's not. And, uh, and so when we have neighborhoods without sidewalks, we create them exclusive uh, to anyone who might have a disability or an accessibility challenge so that they're not able to move into that neighborhood. And I think that's something we need to keep front of mind every time we make a decision on these things. Ward 11 Councillor Stephen Turner joining us on London Live. So could this debate come up again? Could we be right back at square one for those areas that are not going to have sidewalks put in come 2025? This will come up time and time and time again. Uh, unless Council creates a policy that it's willing to stand up, stand up and, and follow or, um, or just throw up the policy altogether. And uh, and I think in the, the latter circumstance, that's really not a path we want to go down. Councillor Turner, as a final note, one of the other things, and even though the sidewalk discussion took a long, long time last night, one of the other things that you did talk about was wards and how many to have in the city. You expressed some opinion on that. Can you share that with us? Yeah, uh, a motion was put forward at the Corporate Services Committee to investigate uh, creating a 10-ward map into the current 14-one as an option uh, to uh, to look out for the 2022 uh, election. Um, reducing the number of wards uh, would have uh, some pretty significant impacts in terms of decreasing representation uh, and also uh, serves to marginalize the communities that, uh, that might not be as well represented within the community. Uh, the 14 wards, uh, when they were designed, were tried to design uh, to reflect communities of interest. Um, when uh, when you have larger wards, then you in- increase the impact of uh, larger donations because it costs more to uh, canvas a neighborhood that's larger. And it also means that, um, that the canvassing by uh, councillors, the council candidates, tends to bias towards those areas that are vote-rich versus those that, uh, that have lower voter turnout. And those correlations are directly associated with um, with uh, income and home ownership. So those two things end up creating this um, 
this exacerbation of decreasing the participation of those who probably need representation the most. Well, I'm sure that discussion is far from over as well. Councillor Turner, thank you for bringing us up to date on everything. Please keep safe and have a great rest of the day. Mike, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Have a great one. Ward 11 Councillor Stephen Turner. So this is what it comes down to. It is the government's job to create policy. Yes. How do you deal with exceptions? Because you are going to encounter individuals who have sway, loud voices. This has existed forever. This is nothing new. But in this case, as both, and we heard from Councillor Turner, and we heard it from the clip that we played from Phil Squire, who was on the morning show with Devin Peacock today, this is going to come up again, and we're going to have to revisit it again. When do you get to the point where you can say, here's what the policy is, and even if you live in an older neighborhood and you don't want the street torn up or you're worried about a tree or whatever it happens to be, this is the way that we're dealing with this once and for all. It's a difficult thing. But I still go back to what Jesse Helmer had pointed to. It is the job of government to tell people things that they don't want to hear sometimes. And that didn't happen in this case. We have a need, as always, for officials. And the need may not be looked at, obviously, in the same way that a need for people in healthcare happens to be but for young people looking to be officials you can't have kids sports which we will hopefully have a whole lot more of this summer and beyond thanks to the vaccines that we are putting into arms and thanks for the way that or thanks to the way that we are able to handle the pandemic maybe a little bit differently than last summer but if you don't have Officials, you don't have much in the way of kids' sports. And Elgin Middlesex Soccer Association is putting together a roundtable discussion called So You Want to Be a Match Official, and it comes up. It's open to the public Monday, March 29th at 7 o'clock, and we'll have more details on that on Friday. But we wanted to talk to Dave DeBenedictus and discuss officials and and how things do sit for kids and what this past year has been like and what might be coming. Dave is the director of soccer with London TFC. Dave, thanks for the time today. Thanks, Mike. Always great talking to you. How is soccer going right now? If we were to kind of hit a pause button and look around, what would we see for the sport of soccer that is happening and that isn't happening? Well, right now we're we're in the you know the orange zone, so we have some some little bit of limitations, but uh, enough that we can get you know training on the field, whether it be indoor, outdoor, with again with some limitations and guidelines. But you know the important thing is kids are on the field and being active, and that that's first and foremost, right? And you know if we have to make adjustments, we're doing the best we can. And when you look at those adjustments, how many things are you dealing with right now? How strict have the protocols been? Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it strict. I think. I think we should all look at the safety first of all the players, right? Whether it be a, a pandemic or or guidelines and health and safety in general. So you know, little things like you know, making sure we do the proper screening, you know, pre-screening of questionnaires, and making sure everybody wearing their mask off, you know, leading up to the field, coaches being in in uh, in masks, 
um, trying to keep, you know, in, enforcing or trying to encourage distancing as much as possible, you know, and, uh, you know, and keeping parents distancing on the sidelines, limit, limiting how many players you can have on the field and how many um, parents are allowed. So little things like that. But again, you know, at the end of the day, as long as the kids are on the field, these minor adjustments and to keep people health, health uh, safe is, is, is important to us you know, no matter what. What do you think being able to have the players on the field or involved in some of the over-the-winter activities has meant for them? I think, it, you know, physical and mental health has been huge. You know, we, we had a you know one week where we were, we were going to the BMO and training and then, and then the restrictions changed a bit and they had to shut it down. And you could just see the... You know, it was sad to see the excitement of the high level of excitement one week, and then to the deflation of not happening. That that was evident right there, and how much it meant to them. You know, just the social interaction, being being with their teammates in person, right? Being able to talk to their coach in person. Like we did Zoom as much as possible, and we did the best we can. But it's nothing's real to the nothing's the best of being real. Dave DeBenedictus joining us, director of soccer with London TFC. If we look going forward, is everything still fairly status quo while we're still dealing with rising case counts and things like that? Or do you have projections on what spring and summer could be like in area soccer? Well, we, we're, you know, we're going day by day, obviously. Right? We don't know what the future is going to hold. And you know, we're, we're taking positive that there is going to be, like you said earlier, there's, there's positive signs happening with vaccines and treatments and better understanding on how to, how to work around this. So. You know, the weather's getting better, so obviously whenever the, the hotter weather comes, you know, more outdoor activities are allowed. So we're doing the best we can. So we have contingency plans. So, you know, what we're doing today, what could look like in red, what could look like in orange. Um, so we have plan A, plan B, plan C, and we'll just implement that plan once we know what zone we're in. So, you know, at the end of the day, if we can get the kids on the field, whatever limitations it is, we're going to do the best we can. How much of a challenge has the fluctuation between the different zones been over the last few months? In the beginning, it was a challenge, but I think now we're so used to it. <laughs> it's become like part of our program of understanding, you know, red zone, orange zone, yellow zone. Uh, the only flexibility is on schedule, um, you know, with the, with the limited, especially in indoor, with the limited availability. You know, I feel sorry for BMO had to constantly change, you know, not constantly, but changing from week to week sometimes of what they're allowed or, or can or cannot do. So we got a pretty good grasp on it right now. Things always come up. You know, we're always calling audibles to try to see, you know, how to make things better and, um, you know, it has been, it's been easier. I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's been easier since, you know, obviously coming back from June and July of last year. Dave DeBenedictus joining us with London TFC. And we're talking soccer, getting kind of a lay of how things are going. We do have referees and they become absolutely critical and yet here we've gone through a year where at times we haven't needed as many officials for matches or because there haven't been games you haven't needed officials at all and now we've got a summer coming up where hopefully you're going to be able to get back to playing more games how much of a concern does the match official become uh it's it's always been a concern before the pandemic of, of trying to find young officials just because you know the common practice in sports in sports of the abuse to officials, and especially being a young person, right, and the, the parent abuse and player abuse. So that's always been a bit of an issue there. Now, adding on to the pandemic, it just makes it more prevalent of an issue. Um, so it, it is a bit of a concern for us, uh, especially now. And, and you know, we, you know, we we've been in contact with some of the help, uh, the head officials in the city, and, and been you know, privy to what they're planning on doing. And, and 
to be honest, our, our referees association here in London have been a fantastic job of trying to get new referees in place and trying to guide them and, and mentor them and, and being a support mechanism for them to not only eliminate the abusive part of the, you know, being official, always getting abused, also dealing with, with uh, the pandemic as well. So they, it's a two, like a two headed monster going on right now. Then I think they've done a great job for it. And I, I'm positive that we're going to have, you know, referees this, this summer. And, and again, I think, everybody works together we can make it work for everybody even with limitations in finding those match officials now do you expect a lot of them to just come back because in some ways you're dealing with officials who will grow up within the sport but they may be moving on to college or university in another city do you expect to have to overcome a bit of a gap i think so yeah i I, that's my my opinion i think we're going to have a bit of a gap well um, just in general, like you said, other outside activities are, are become more important to them, university, college, social life. Um, and then now you add on a bit of a, pen, you know, having on a pandemic, even that becomes a concern. You know, they have family at home they have to be concerned about. So, you know, you have the younger ones, but even some of the older older referees that have been around, um, you, know, you know, some of these guys have been refereeing for 30 years. They're in their 60s. So now they started having concerns about, am I, do I feel comfortable going back on the field? So it's it's a lot of moving parts on here and a lot of concerns and, um, that's in the back of our mind, so we, we just got to figure out a solution when that time comes. Again, it's about calling the audible at that moment. We don't know what's going to happen or when. Well, this Monday there is at 7 o'clock, Elgin Middlesex Soccer Association is putting on a roundtable discussion about referees. What do you see match officials getting out of it? If somebody can kind of say to their son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter, hey, you know what, here's, here's what's happening. What do you see as being the benefits of having officiated soccer? I think with that roundtable, I think there's multiple things that can come out of that. One is, is showing what it takes to be a referee and, and, and what, what's the importance of being a referee. And also, I think some of the new referees that are already in the system, having, having the, the, the understanding or, or the support that they, they need, right? that there is officials out there, head officials, uh, district referees, um, you know, head of DRCs, and helping them out and guide them to, to make sure they have that support. Because I think that's always a concern about any new referee, that they're concerned about you know, what uh, – you know, do I have support? Like, what do I need to support that guidance? Right, and and that's what I think that roundtable is going to be important for them, is the understanding of what it takes to be a referee, and if you are a referee, we're there to support you. Well, Dave, we really appreciate the update on how things are going in the soccer world locally, and here's hoping that by the maybe the toward the end of the summer, we are seeing things feeling a, a whole lot more normal. I know we're all holding out hope for that. I hope so, Mike. I, I, I'm a positive thinker, and I think we will have a summer season, and, and we'll, we'll hopefully be back on the radio and we'll talk about how the league's going. Hey, love to do that. Actually, think about that. Talking about how teams are doing, how games are going, talking about players who have a shot at going on and, and doing even bigger things. Remember those days, Dave, when we used to be able to talk about that? Those are great old days, and I think we'll have them sooner and later, Mike. Dave, you take care of yourself. Thanks for the time. All the best, Mike. Thank you. That is Dave DeBenedictus of London TFC. And again, it is the Elgin Middlesex Soccer Association putting on uh, that particular roundtable that will deal a lot with match officials. So if you go to their website, you can pre-register for that or you can tip somebody off and, and they can pre-register if they'd like to take part in it. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 